Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janet Christofero and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Dougie. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast, and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Dear Dougie podcast, produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children in Portland, Oregon. I'm Jana DeCristofero. After over 30 years of listening to the stories of grieving children, teens, and adults in our grief support groups, we wanted to share what we've learned with them with the larger community. Our podcast is a way to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While we will all experience loss during our lives, when it occurs, many of us are left not knowing what to do, how to feel, or even how to talk about it. So whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we're here to explore and talk about what matters to you most in grief. I'm really excited today because Donna Sherman, our CEO, is back for part three in a four-part series talking about suicide, language, and stigma. Donna, welcome back. Thank you, Jana. In part one, you took us through the language we use to talk about suicide and the ways much of what is said about suicide can be stigmatizing. In part two, we talked about specific terms to avoid and what to say instead. Today, we're going to dive into one of the biggest questions that comes up around suicide, one that I hear all the time in our groups. Why do people die of suicide? Donna, can you give us a brief overview of what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, the things I'd like to talk about today are various ways of looking at why people die of suicide and some of the myths or misconceptions that have contributed, I think, to the stigma as well as to the lack of understanding of why people feel suicidal and why people act on, on their feelings and end their lives. So when we look at the causes, there are um, so many people dealing with similar circumstances in terms of mental and physical illness, addiction, divorces, job losses. Do you have a sense of just the basic of what would lead some people to die of suicide and others not to? Well, I think that's a really good question because a lot of times when we talk about suicide, everyone says, well, it's depression, it's depression. And yet we know that a lot of people who have depression are not suicidal and or never act on any suicidal tendencies or feelings if they do occur. So. I think that the question of what's the difference between being depressed or having job problems or marital problems or any kind of issues that lead one person to perhaps depression but recovery, if you will, and others to taking their own lives is one of the key questions. I don't know that there's a simple answer to that, but the one thing that is common in every suicide death is the person has a perception of pain that for them feels unbearable. So I like to think about it in certain ways of if you broke your leg and your bones sticking out and you're in agony, you can only think about getting out of pain. And I think that mental pain, psychic pain, emotional pain, whether it's depression or other kinds of pain, that leads to a hopelessness. There is no way out of this pain other than death. So it's a perception of the person 
those of us who are not feeling suicidal can see, well, there are a lot of ways to get out of this pain, but the person who is suicidal cannot see it. So I think that one of the commonalities is a hopelessness. And when we talk about why people die of suicide or why a lot of things happen in the world, I think we'd love to have kind of simplistic answers. And there is no one simple answer or contributor to why people die of suicide. So someone might say, well, his girlfriend broke up with them or you know, her husband left. Those may have been triggering factors, but they aren't the single cause. It's multi-causal. And there are lots of different theories, and one of the theories that resonates with me is Edwin Schneidman's theory around psych ache, that it's, it's more than depression. It's, it's a hopelessness of, of the soul, if you will. I can't see any hope for myself. And, and Edwin started doing his research into this quite a while ago. Yes, he's right. considered kind of the father of modern uh, suicidology, the study of suicide. And he's written Suicide as Psychic and The Suicidal Mind. He died in his early 90s, but his work was revolutionary at the time and I think holds a lot of validity now. Uh, Thomas Joyner is another more recent psychologist professor who has written a number of books, Why People Die by Suicide, Myths of Suicide. And he talks about three factors. Uh, his terminology is a little, um, let's say, encyclopedic maybe, thwarted belongingness. You can't find a, a way to fit in. You, you, you're not finding that social connection. A second one is perceived burdensomeness that Joyner talks about, like people will be better off without me. And how important that perception of burdensomeness, because that so much of what I hear of families struggling with is how could this person have thought we would be better off without them? Exactly. Um, and so it's, anyways, you were talking earlier about how the perception of pain and the experience of pain is so subjective. It's not an objective thing that we can measure when we're looking at people and suicidal thoughts and suicidal actions. Yeah, and you know, those of us who are not in a suicidal mind know that there are options for people, and we can see that, but the suicidal mind does not, by virtue of the psychic pain, seem to be able to access those options. Things or, get so narrowed in a sense. Exactly. Their, their realm of possibility has narrowed. And we all have physical health. We all have mental health. And so I think it is a mental health issue, but it's not as simple as just pinning it on depression. Mm -hmm. Depression is a part of it, but there are a lot of people for whom that option to end their lives feels and seems to them as very logical and very rational, even though it doesn't necessarily to others. Right, and the ultimate only option for them. And I remember when I was reading Thomas Joyner's book, when he talks about the perceived burdensomeness, the sense of thwarted belongingness, and that acquired ability to inflict self-harm, it seemed like his, his take on it took into account people's internal experience and then their social contextual experience and their physical experience as well. Exactly, and spiritual and emotional. So it, it's much more complicated. 
And I don't think that we, we look enough at the social context uh, often, that it's a lot it's what's happening in someone's mind, but you can't necessarily separate that from the social context in which they feel excluded or feel different or feel like there is no hope for them to ever fit in. Right. I remember being so surprised in his book when he noted studies that showed that the suicide rates in communities actually went down when a sports team was doing really well because mm-hmm. there was this sense of uh, connection, even if people weren't out going to the games, just that sense when you walked around that there, all the banners are flying and we're in this together. And then also after a large scale tragedy, Mm -hmm. let's say after 9-11, that the suicide rates actually went down in New York um, based on that sense of we're all in this together. Yeah. There's something about the social connectedness that we seem and apparently need as human beings. I do want to mention one other thing, Jana, which is one of the worst responses that I've ever heard to why people die of suicide is statements like, we'll never know, the, the answer ended with that person, they took it, or you should stop asking why because we'll never know. And I think that what one of the things that that does is it presents it as if like an asteroid appeared from nowhere and know, suddenly hit someone. Took out the town. Took out we the town. And we, and we have no idea how it happened. And the, the reality is that not everyone shows signs. Sometimes those signs that may have been there are only signs in retrospect. And some people who look like they're absolutely doing fine don't show signs and die of suicide. So it doesn't mean that we can always understand why this minute and not yesterday, why not two weeks from now. The timing may not be clear to us, but I think we can say conclusively that the person was in pain, whether we saw it or not, whether they showed it or not, that became unbearable to them. And that's why. So. What were the contributors to that is a whole other large question. And sometimes I wonder if implicit in the we'll never know why is the fear that if we know why, then somehow we were responsible Mm -hmm. for stopping it in some way. Yeah, and and we do those things where we say, particularly with kids, when when a, a teen dies of suicide, for example, on one hand, we want to say to teens, it was, it's not your fault, it was his choice. And then on the other hand, we're saying, well, you could prevent it if you get help. So it's a little bit of a double bind. And I think, I wanna say something also about that, it's his choice or her choice, which I think is another way to sort of absolve ourselves of any implication in having any responsibility. I believe very strongly that if it is a choice, it's the choice of someone whose ability to think through other options is impaired. So is it a choice to have a heart attack? I don't know if it's a choice to have a heart attack, but it might be a choice to be eating foods that contribute to your heart not functioning well. So on the physical level, we all do things, or many of us, that contribute to a lower quality of physical health. And I think when we say it was his choice, there's nothing you could have done, 
that's not really true necessarily. Or at least, I think we say that sometimes to try to make people feel better. And there is a place of maybe there really wasn't anything anybody could do, just as it's, you know, as a child, you can't control what your parent is choosing to eat or not eat. And as a child, you can't control if your parent is choosing to ingest substances or not. But there are elements of that person's actions may have contributed to a situation that led to the death. Exactly. And that's not a happy prospect for us, uh, because I think we all want to look back and say, was what did I miss? What could I have done? And I've heard people say, too, things around, he didn't know how much we loved him. And I actually had a friend who died of suicide named Vince. And I remember his brother, we did a kind of a meeting with Vince of trying to help him. And his brother looked at him and said, Vince, don't you know how much we love you? And it was as if he had spoken a foreign language. Vince mm -hmm. looked at all of us and said, Love has nothing to do with this. You have no idea the pain that I'm in. So when someone dies of suicide, it doesn't mean that they didn't love us or that they didn't know we loved them. You know, love doesn't cure cancer. Right. Love doesn't prevent car accidents. Love, as beautiful as it is, can be does not necessarily in and of itself prevent suicide. So I think sometimes people beat themselves up who are, who are bereaved by a suicide death saying things like, I wish I had told him more how much I loved him, as if that may have changed the outcome. And it, it's typically not that simple. And interesting too, because almost anyone who comes through the doors of the Dougie Center who's had someone die may say, I wish I had said, I love you more. Yeah. But it doesn't have that same angle of, because maybe it would have made a difference. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. It's, uh, most people aren't saying after a car accident, I wish I had told him I loved him more because maybe he wouldn't have died in the car accident. They're more expressing the regrets of what now they can't do or wish they hadn't done, which is kind of normal after any death, which is another reason to not live that way, you know, to, to tell people you love them, to live without regret, so. And I'm wondering, too, is, you know, there's been so much research done trying to unearth what is the cause of suicide mm -hmm. and why do some people die by suicide and some people don't. And I know there's been a lot of research lately about means reduction. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you had anything you wanted to share about that and what that might mean. Well, from the studies that I've looked at, this is another myth, I think, is that sometimes people say it, he was going to kill himself or she was going to kill herself no matter what we did. But we know that there are a lot of people who have attempted suicide and lived and not died of suicide later. They've died of something else or they're still alive, including studies of, I think it's somewhere around 30 people who've jumped off the uh, Golden Gate Bridge and survived who very few of them went on to die of suicide. So that's a myth. Now, there may be individuals who are going to no matter what. We also know, and I know it's not a popular topic per se here in the United States, but we have more access to guns than many other countries. And if we reduce access to guns by 
a lot of different ways, but also keeping them from the hands of people who, kids and teens and people who may be depressed or suicidal, we know that that has an impact on reduction. So, you know, the, Edwin Schneidman said there are three things that have to be in place for someone to die of suicide, and one is that hopelessness, or what he called psych ache, an ache of the soul. The second one is the means, and that's guns and ropes and bridges, and we're never going to get rid of everything, but I think it is one part that we really can focus on of the three-legged stool. Mm -hmm. And the third part is what he called perturbation, or the ability to act. So for example, there are a lot of depressed people who are so depressed they can't even get out of bed, and they don't have the energy or the impulsivity or to act. And we need to interrupt one of those three things, at least, to prevent a suicide death from happening. So means reduction is one of the three-legged stools. And it almost seems like one that might be a little easier to uh, influence or have some control over because the other ones are so individual to each person. Yeah, and there's a lot of work happening in the United States with the Golden Gate Bridge, for example, or here in Portland with what they call the Suicide Bridge. Vista Bridge. The Vista Bridge mm -hmm. to put netting or to make it harder for people to jump over. And some people say, well, they'll just go to another bridge, but that's not always the case. So means reduction or interrupting the impulsivity and the means has saved some lives. Right, so if you go and if there's an impulsive piece of it and there's an inability to, you go to the Vista Bridge and there's a new barrier and then, okay, that's not gonna work. There may be some people who that was their one option. Yeah. And they don't have another option, and then the crisis may pass, and maybe there's a chance for more intervention. Yeah. One of the things I don't think we have a clear handle on, and there's really conflicting information around, is so Thomas Joyner says, for example, one of the contributors to suicide uh, death is an acquired capacity to experience pain or a decreased fear of the pain of death. And he doesn't seem to believe that there are, for example, impulsive suicide deaths. On the other hand, there have been studies that asked people who had made suicide attempts and did not die, how long did you think about it? And, and some of them say 10 minutes to 30 minutes before they acted. I think the, the next question is, well, how often have you thought about it before those 10 to 30 <laughs> minutes? You know, have you been thinking about it? When was your first suicidal thought? Did it start 10 years ago or two years ago? Because I don't think most people are just sitting perfectly healthy, mentally healthy one day and it strikes them like the asteroid. Oh, today in 10 minutes I think I will jump off a bridge. There is some sort of, whether we see it or not, mulling around of that potential. And it's also one of the reasons why a lot of times people who have been suicidal look like they're doing so much better and everybody's relieved and then they jump off the bridge or hang themselves or shoot themselves. And sometimes it's because they have found 
relief in knowing that their pain, they have a plan, they're planning to execute the plan, and that gives them relief and they, and they look better. So it's, it's very complex and very confusing. Mm -hmm. That last piece, very confusing for many of people who are bereaved of, by suicide of, but they were finally doing better. Yes. And I had the hope. And, you know, I think we hear echoes of that of families who experienced an illness death. You know, they were doing better and then yes. suddenly things took a turn for the worse. Yes. Um, in our last few moments, are there some other pieces that you wanted to make sure we covered today? Well, one of the things I'd like to add, I mentioned the, the idea around choice. And if it's a choice, it's profoundly affected by other mental health issues and, and social issues often that really push someone to kind of a domino effect. Another one that I find concerning is when people say suicide is selfish or cowardly. I think that what that reveals is a, a lack of understanding of the desperation and the pain that a person who is suicidal is in. And I think in terms of selfishness, the person really believes that people will be better off without them. Going so, back to that perceived burdensomeness. Yes, their thinking is distorted. And also, not to say that there aren't some people, you know, that that might have some hints of truth around. For people who have been abusive, for example, toward their children or abusive toward other people. Another one is the, the cowardly. And I have asked people from time to time, you know, have you ever stood on a bridge thinking about jumping? Have you put a gun to your head? Have you put a noose around your neck? I don't see that as cowardly. I see that as desperate. Mm -hmm. Desperate attempt to get out of pain. And for me, the response to that is compassion and understanding what drives someone to that point of such serious pain. And I think, again, if we look at societal factors, we look at internal factors, and we look at that, we may ultimately be able to do a better job at intervening and preventing. To be able to open up that door to recognize, I think sometimes people say, well, it's just selfish and cowardly. It's a, it can be a, let's close the door on this. It'll never happen to me because I'm not selfish or cowardly, mm -hmm. and it'll never happen to anyone in my family because no one I know is that mm -hmm. selfish or that cowardly. Yeah. So it seems to be a distancing yeah. Uh, yeah, option. or the easy way out. I mean, I think that's a pretty difficult way out. <laughs> but so many different levels and layers, not only looking at how people die by suicide, why they might die by suicide, but also how that affects the people who are left behind. And it sounds like that's what we're going to go into in, in part four yes. when you join us again and looking at what are, how does all of this affect and influence those who are bereaved, the children, the adults, the people left behind. So That's what we'll look at next. Okay. Looking forward to you joining us then for that time. Thanks, Jana. And thanks everyone out there listening today for joining us for another episode of the Dear Dougie podcast. We appreciate hearing from you. We want to be talking about what you're most interested in. So if you have ideas, suggestions, questions, comments, please send them our way. You can reach us at help at Dougie, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. If you send us an email, just throw podcast somewhere in the subject line. You can also um, 
Look at us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And if you'd like to listen to some past episodes, just go to our website, which is D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. And we look forward to having you join us again in the future for another episode of the Dear Dougie podcast. Thanks for listening.